chapter 14. This chapter continues tracing the route of Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. It's also going to note the increasing persecution endured by the Apostle Paul. You see that mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. It's also going to give special attention to the appointment of elders in every church. Luke continues his narration of events during Paul's first missionary journey upon arriving at Iconium. Paul and Barnabas again visited the local synagogue. The response to their message was positive among Jews and Greeks, but soon opposition came from unbelieving Jews. Even so, Paul and Barnabas stayed a long time in Iconium, speaking boldly and performing signs and wonders. Eventually, the opposition became violent, forcing Paul and Barnabas to flee to Lystra and Derbe. In Lystra, Paul healed a man crippled from birth, similar to what Peter did in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. The people assumed that Paul and Barnabas must be gods, and so named them Zeus and Jupiter. Barnabas was named Zeus or Jupiter, and Paul was named Hermes or Mercurius. When the priests of Zeus prepared to offer sacrifices, the apostles tore their own clothes and barely restrained them by an impassioned speech. Not long after, Jews from Antioch and Iconium persuaded the multitudes to stone Paul and drag him outside the city. Though assumed to be dead, Paul was able to return to the city and depart the next day with Barnabas to Derby, where they preached the gospel and made many disciples. From Derby, Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps, strengthened the disciples in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. Passing through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, where they preached the gospel in Perga. From there they went down to Italia, and then they sailed to Antioch, Syria, from which they began their journey, where they reported to the church all that God had done with them. Acts chapter 14, 8-13 says, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of the Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. In ignorance, the locals react wrongly to the miracle and oratory skill of Paul. They assume that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Paul and Barnabas initially do not realize it because the people are speaking in their native tongue. They call Paul Mercurius, or Hermes, the Greek god of oratory, and the inventor of speech. They called the noble Barnabas Jupiter, or Zeus, the chief god. Tony Merida had the following insight regarding this event. He said, It's possible that this superstitious and fanatical declaration came from a local legend. The Latin poet Ovid describes how the gods descended to this region, seeking hospitality, but everyone rejected the gods except one poor couple. 
who took them in and treated them kindly. The gods then punished the unwelcoming residents with a severe flood. The superstitious people of Lystra may want to escape disaster, so they laud Paul and Barnabas. Now Paul and Barnabas recognize something is happening as they see the priest of Zeus arrive with garland and bulls for sacrifice. Paul and Barnabas rush into the crowd of the people and rent their garments. This act was a sign of mourning, Genesis chapter 37, 29, and 34. It's also a sign of distress. We see that in Joshua chapter 7, verse 6. Or protest, a perceived blasphemy. That's noticed in Mark 14, 63. Here in this instance, missionaries are urging the people to stop their sacrifice. Acts chapter 14, 14, 18 says, Which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea, and all the things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, Scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Now Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and persuade the multitude to stone Paul. Presumed dead, Paul is dragged outside the city where later, as he is surrounded by disciples, he revives and returns to the city. Acts chapter 14, 19-20 There came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, Supposing he had been dead, howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Charles Ryrie had these comments about this event. He said more than 100 miles separated Antioch from Lystra. Yet they dogged Paul's trail and stirred up the people so much that they stoned the apostle. Some feel that Paul was speaking of this experience of stoning in the account in 2 Corinthians 12, 1-5 while others think that it was on this occasion that he received the marks spoken of in Galatians 6.17. In any case, there is grim irony in the quick reversal of the people's attitude toward the one whom shortly before they thought to be a god. Two, God performed a miracle in Lystra, for Paul got up from the stoning and the next day was strong enough to leave for Derby. Some believe that the apostle actually died and was raised, while others assume he was not really dead. J. Vernon McGee offers a more definitive opinion on this account of the stoning of Paul. He said they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Do you think he was dead? I'll tell you what I think. I think he was dead. Later, Paul writes of the experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2-4, to which says, I knew a man in Christ about fourteen years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up in the paradise, and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Who was that man? It was Paul himself. Second Corinthians 12:7 says, Unless I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. I don't think that crowd left him half dead. 
I think they left him dead. I believe God raised him from the dead. Now the next day, Paul and Barnabas depart to Derby, where they preach the gospel, make many disciples before beginning their return trip through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now must all Christians suffer tribulation for the kingdom? Must all Christians suffer tribulation for the kingdom? The apostles all certainly did, as Jesus said they would in Matthew chapter 10. The apostle Paul mentioned the sufferings of others and himself in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We may not suffer the persecution they did. Ours may be in the lesser form of ridicule or being ostracized, but we must always be prepared to suffer should it become our duty to do so. Are we preparing ourselves with the proper mindset should persecution come our way? Are we willing to suffer for Christ? Will we be quick to forgive those who persecuted us? Will we welcome someone who had a hand in murdering our fellow church members into our midst as a preacher of the gospel? Think about that one. Let me say that again. Would we welcome someone who had a hand in murdering our fellow church members just because they were Christians? Would we welcome that person into the midst of our church as a preacher? How would we react to that? Would we welcome Paul into our church? Would we stand fast in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ under threat of severe persecution? Many early Christians suffered persecution. The church in Jerusalem, we see that in Acts chapter 8. The churches in Thessalonica and Philippi. As Jesus warned those of Smyrna in Revelation 2 verse 10. Not all early Christians suffered. There were periods of peace among the churches. We see that in Acts chapter 9. Jesus promised the church at Philadelphia they would be spared. That's in Revelation 3.10. It seems that some of the early Christians were permitted to suffer to confirm the testimony of those early witnesses of the faith. But not all Christians suffered the persecution of others. Early Christians were not told to seek out persecution, and they were permitted, permitted to flee from persecution. That's in Matthew chapter 10.23. As Paul did on one occasion in Acts chapter 9. Also mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When these early Christians were persecuted for the cause of Christ, they were told to do two things. One, to glorify God. 1 Peter 4.16 says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And the second thing they were told to do if they suffered persecution for the cause of Christ was to rejoice and be happy for the honor first thing they were told to do if they suffered persecution for the cause of Christ was to glorify God. And the second thing they were told to do was to rejoice and be happy for the honor. 1 Peter 4.14 4, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. When Paul and Barnabas suffered tribulation for the kingdom of God, they did not give up preaching the gospel. Persecution also did not achieve the desired outcome of the persecutors, for the persecution did not hinder the growth and development of the church. Quite the contrary, it spurred the rapid development of the church. Let's examine Paul's missionary policies. First, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 14, as commanded by Jesus himself. Number two, make disciples by preaching the gospel and not being content to just get them baptized, but teach them as disciples, Matthew chapter 28. Number three, establish local churches. 
See that in Acts 14 and Romans 16. Number four, strengthen and exhort the brethren, which may explain why he retraced his steps in Acts chapter 14 and why he visited them again and again. Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 16, and chapter 18. Number five, appoint elders in every church. These were bishops, overseers, also known as pastors or shepherds, who were men who had to meet certain qualifications. The quick appointment may be due to Jewish converts already well-versed in the word and who may have served earlier as elders in the synagogues. Number six, commend them to the Lord's care. The early church did not practice apostolic succession. Acts chapter 12, James was not replaced. Instead, the apostles left the churches to the grace or the providence of God. And number seven, report back to the church that sent them. The church at Antioch of Syria had sent Paul on this journey in Acts chapter 13. It was only proper to report back to them what took place. We find that in Acts 14 verse 27. Now these policies, these seven points we outlined here, Paul's missionary policies, that sounds an awful lot like how missions are done today. Not all denomination churches conduct missions the same way, but this is the biblical model for missions that Luke recorded for us in the Word of God. It sounds a lot like how many churches do missions today. Preach the gospel. Make disciples by preaching the gospel. Get them baptized. Train them up. Establish local churches. Strengthen and exhort the brethren. Visit them again and again. Appoint elders in every city. Men that are trained, men that are qualified. Commend them to the Lord's care. Trust them into God's grace and God's providence. And then report back to the church that sent them. This is how missionary work is done in many churches today and is Paul's model. Following Paul's teaching, Paul's example, on how this is done. So this type of mission work is biblical mission work.